0: So uh, once again, I'm I'm very grateful to be here uh, now to to present uh, some of the work from my PhD dissertation, um, which is titled, uh, The Theory of Moral Hazard, Foundations and Extensions. Uh, The ideas that I'm talking about today are excerpted from the second chapter of that dissertation, uh, in which I attempt to show that there are some distinctly Austrian ways uh, in which to think about problems of, uh, of perverse incentives and moral hazard problems in particular. Um, so relatively quickly, I'll just uh, I'll go over what moral hazard is uh, in general, uh, what the mainstream economists make of it, uh, and then what, what the limitations of the mainstream approach are, uh, and then lastly, uh, how the theory can be understood in light of the Austrian theory of the entrepreneur. So I think it's, it's best to begin uh, just by explaining broadly what moral hazard is. Uh, I think moral hazard is one of those terms that was mostly uh, unknown outside of economic circles uh, until recently. Um, but with the events of the financial crisis uh, and the bailouts, uh, you've begun to see it uh, used more commonly in everyday language. Uh, moral hazard is a, is a variety of welfare problem, uh, and uh, it's, you can't really define it in terms of uh, just one individual. Um, you really need more than one person to make the idea make sense, uh, because it's only when you have more than one person that uh, welfare conflicts can emerge. Uh, Now, the the topic of social interaction broadly begins with the possibility um, for peaceful and productive association, uh, and that possibility, of course, leads to the division of labor. Um, But the extension of the division of labor requires, basically, that at some point, uh, delegation will be necessary. Uh, Some sort of duties will have to be uh, assigned to one individual by another. Uh, And once you have delegation, uh, a type of agreement exists, uh, say, between a principal and an agent, Um, although it may not be a formal agreement, Um, and simultaneously, uh, it also becomes possible uh, with the agreement for either party to this this contract uh, to behave in ways um, that are undesirable to the other. Uh, And this can happen um, either within a firm, um, say between a manager and a laborer, um, or even uh, just in simple exchange between uh, buyers and sellers. Um, So there are many different ways to define moral hazard, um, but the definitions that summarize best uh, revolve around the idea that uh, when an individual uh, does not bear the cost of his actions, um, especially when he can push the cost of his actions uh, onto unwilling third parties, uh, he has less incentive uh, to take care to avoid negative outcomes. Uh, In the simplest sense, um, reducing the cost of something encourages you to do more of it, uh, and what the fear of moral hazards is concerned with um, are a series of ways in which this very basic cost principle uh, results in, in negative outcomes. Um, the standard example is from insurance. Uh, when, you're, when your house is uninsured against fire, you have a very strong incentive to take care of it um, because if anything happens to it, uh, the cost falls on you. Um, but for instance, uh, if you are fully insured against fire, you don't bear the entire cost if the house goes up in flames. Uh, And therefore, you have less incentive um, to take care, uh, for example, not to have flammable materials in your house, not to have like oily rags piled up in the garage, that kind of thing. Um, And in fact, uh, depending on the particular circumstances, uh, the lack of an incentive to avoid an event uh, may actually be an incentive to bring it about, uh, as in the case where a man burns his own house down um, to collect the insurance money. Um, but whether we speak in terms of simply uh, uh, taking less care uh, or, or actually actively pursuing uh, some kind of undesired outcome, uh, the, the principle remains the same. Uh, moral hazard uh, as a specific concept uh, appeared in the, uh, in the 19th century in the insurance industry um, where the term was first coined. Uh, And in fact, insurance remains the the most well-known and and studied example of moral hazard, uh, although, as I will mention, the the principle is actually much broader than uh, simple insurance contracts. Um, As far as economics specifically is concerned, uh, moral hazard entered the literature uh, through the work of Frank Knight uh, in his 1921 book, Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit, um, which of course includes discussions of uh, the insurance industry and the economic rules that govern it. Uh, Knight was, was obviously also one of the great theorists of entrepreneurship uh, and exercised a very important influence on Mises and the Austrian theory of the entrepreneur. Um, so in a sense, it should not come as a surprise um, that there is going to be a, a way of looking at moral hazard problems uh, that is both uh, distinctly entrepreneurial um, and familiar to, to Austrians uh, because of this influence of Knight. Um, and although Knight does not really dwell on, on the problem of moral hazard, he does indicate that it falls within the scope of entrepreneurship, um, which is what I essentially I will argue in a moment. Uh, Knight's role in, uh, in bringing the idea of moral hazard into economics uh, is also important because it, it highlights the fact that uh, the idea of moral hazard, uh, and along with many of its in- attendant problems, um, such as uh, uh, delegation, uh, asymmetric information, adverse selection, and so on, um, these concepts were not invented by the economic mainstream of the, the 60s and 70s, um, but had roots uh, in much more um, Austrian-friendly and, uh, and entrepreneurial ideas. Um, but unfortunately, after Knight's promising start, the, the idea of moral hazard uh, dropped out of the literature for some time, um, and, and Knight's uncertainty-based sort of entrepreneurial view um, was basically forgotten. Uh, moral hazard doesn't appear much in the non-insurance literature uh, until the early 60s uh, when economists began to talk about economic behavior uh, explicitly and sometimes exclusively in terms of incentives. Um, and over the course of the decade from about uh, 1963 to the, to the early 70s, um, the idea of moral hazard was, uh, was gradually formalized and included uh, in a series of developing literatures in economics uh, on uh, incentives, uh, contracts. Um, and especially the, the economics of information. Uh, Kenneth Arrow published a, a famous paper on the market for medical care in 1963 um, that in, inspired like decades of research into moral hazard. Uh, and there were other very closely related studies as well, um, like Akerlof's 1970 paper on the market for lemons, um, which was the, the paper that, that formalized the concept of asymmetric information. Um, so it was really only through this sort of literature uh, that moral hazard uh, has come to be known in economics, uh, and the predictable result is that economists' thinking on moral hazard is usually based on a few uh, conventional assumptions about behavior uh, that are, are common, uh, that are actually matters of course for the mainstream, um, but are not really compatible with uh, with the Mengarian tradition. Uh, for instance, the idea that uh, the behavior uh, should be modeled uh, as deterministic as opposed to involving some kind of real choice, uh, second, uh, that behavior involves uh, consistent maximization of clearly defined objectives. Uh, Third, uh, that the results of choice can be analyzed and uh, welfare implications drawn uh, in terms of the properties of some relevant equilibrium. Uh, Specifically, uh, the outcome of decision-making under moral hazard uh, can be defined and analyzed uh, in terms of uh, a comparison between different market models. Um, Specifically, of some... uh, uh, well-defined market model where moral hazard exists uh, compared to uh, some equally well-defined model where there are no perverse incentives or where there there is no moral hazard at all. Uh, Typically, some uh, variety of perfectly competitive model. Um, In practice, uh, this means uh, constructing models of moral hazard uh, that start with a, a description of some kind of agency relationship, um, typically, uh, both principal and agent are fully rational utility maximizers, uh, each with their own specific decision functions. Uh, the relevant incentives uh, that push people in one direction or another um, are implied in their respective functions and in their their faculty of rationality. Um, as is uh, conventional with this type of decision making, uh, individuals are, are essentially at the mercy of the incentives they face. As uh, Kersner puts it more generally, uh, a chosen course of action, because it was pronounced mathematically to have been the optimal course of action within the given decision framework, uh, cannot fail to be chosen again and again uh, so long as that given framework prevails. Uh, And from these decisions that people make, we can derive uh, various properties relating to equilibrium uh, from this given set of starting assumptions. uh, And then once we have different outcomes to compare, uh, we can then talk about welfare, uh, and that in turn is supposed to tell us uh, if moral hazard results in some kind of like welfare loss that we should be concerned with. Uh, the result of this reasoning, uh, this uh, this mainstream approach, the, the reason why we're supposed to care about it, um, is that moral hazard is sometimes used uh, to demonstrate the existence of market failure and provide a rationale uh, for some type of, of intervention. Uh, The idea is that markets sometimes provide these sort of perverse incentives um, for people to behave in undesirable ways uh, that lead to uh, non-optimal welfare outcomes. Uh, So, for example, um, if health insurance companies provide full coverage, uh, they end up encouraging people to engage in all types of risky behavior. Uh, So, essentially, by trying to help people avoid a negative outcome, uh, you end up subsidizing that outcome. Uh, so uh, you know, on the the, the sort of negative uh, results that this is supposed to bring about, um, they come in a few different varieties. Uh, on the one hand, um, people uh, can simply sort of abuse the system and, and consume more of a uh, service than is deemed optimal. Um, in the case of like a health insurance, they would be consuming more medical services uh, than is than is deemed optimal by the insurance firm. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, perhaps more importantly, um, there's a broader sort of market implication, which is that, uh, again, to take the insurance case, uh, insurance companies will presumably know that this is how uh, people behave uh, like within uh, when facing certain incentives within a certain type of contract. Uh, so insurance companies can simply respond to this expected behavior by not offering uh, certain types of contracts um, that they believe will involve these incentives. Um, and, and so the, the end result in terms of the market for something like insurance uh, will be that there are fewer, uh, there's a f- smaller uh, menu of contracts, um, and, and simply uh, fewer insurance services available for purchase. Um, so the market uh, for insurance will be smaller than it might conceivably be, uh, and, and presumably there will be people out there who are sort of looking for insurance um, but can't find it because the relevant contracts aren't available. Um, and, and again, this applies to, to many different types of markets, not just insurance. Any time we would have these sorts of conflicting incentives at play, um, th- those could also be cases of, uh, of moral hazard. Um, so it should not come as a surprise that this is a, a rather mechanistic way of looking at things, uh, especially in that there is, there's really no room in these models uh, for, for real choice or true uncertainty, um, and especially not for entrepreneurs. Uh, the outcome of the, the these uh, the outcome of this process um, is already implied in the conditions of the problem, uh, in the f- decision functions of the, the principles of the agents or what have you. Uh, and in my opinion, trying to to set the theory of moral hazard on firmer ground involves applying a, a series of just a very simple um, Austrian insights to this sort of conventional view, um, particularly for allowing uh, for true choice and especially uh, for uncertainty. Um, So just to see how uh, Austrians might approach moral hazard problems, uh, I mean, we can just think in terms of a a conventional agency problem um, where a a principal is delegating some sort of responsibilities to his agent. Um, Moral hazard is most commonly modeled as as a principal agent problem um, where the principal is an employer and the agent is a a laborer or a subordinate of some sort. Now, uh, the problem arises mostly with regard to... uh, uh, information asymmetries, um, the problem is essentially that if the principal could mod- monitor the agent at all times, uh, there, there would be no problem uh, because there would be no opportunity for, uh, for hidden behavior, which is another expression for moral hazard. Um, but because monitoring is imperfect, uh, it's impossible uh, f- or it's, it becomes possible um, for the agent to get away with not doing his job all the time um, or, or putting in uh, less effort um, than he agreed to. Um, and by, by, uh, by doing this, he imposes some kind of additional cost on the principal. Um, in the conventional view, that would be basically it, um, end of story, um, because the agent must pursue the incentives um, that define his decision function. Um, but in the real world, of course, the problem is that just because the possibility for shirking exists uh, doesn't mean that it will occur. Uh, people are not uh, utility maximizers in this very restrictive sense. Uh, and they face an enormous range of incentives all the time, um, only one of which is going to be the incentive to uh, to, to say slack off. Um, no one is obliged to follow any particular incentive you might you might not um, and this is just a very ex- this is an extremely simple idea, um, but I think it throws a lot of the idea of, of moral hazard into confusion um, because by introducing the concept of real choice and, and action into an agent 's decision. Um, you can also introduce uh, uncertainty about what that decision will be. Um, And naturally, uh, once we start talking about uncertainty, um, this is where the entrepreneur is going to come in. Uh, Because it ends up being one of the entrepreneur's uh, sort of fundamental duties and tasks uh, to judge and arrange the incentives that are present, um, say, within a firm, Uh, And more importantly, it's a task of the entrepreneur to judge how uh, laborers or agents will react to uh, prevailing incentives. Um, Are workers likely to shirk? Um, If so, uh, how different will their performance be uh, from the duties outlined in the labor contract? What sort of effect will that behavior have uh, on overall productivity? Uh, these questions are, uh, they have to be addressed by the entrepreneur who speculates about uh, the hidden behavior of his agents uh, according to his, uh, his own judgments. Uh, the entrepreneur, as the, uh, the residual controlling force in the production process, plays the fundamental role in arranging incentives so as to promote the success of his own enterprise. Uh, and in practice, Uh, That will mean that the entrepreneur will basically make judgments about uh, how the arrangement of incentives will affect the productivity of labor, Um, and then further, uh, he will also make judgments about how expected labor productivity uh, will compare to expected productivity of capital and so on. Uh, And so the entrepreneur has to to constantly account for the presence of hidden action, and hidden information uh, in the incentives that... uh, within his firm or within his market. Um, And this is really just uh, another component, in my opinion, of the notion of of entrepreneurial calculation uh, that Mises suggested. Uh, And I think that looking at things this way lets us uh, contrast the conventional from the Austrian view. uh, Because when we acknowledge that arranging incentives is an entrepreneurial activity, um, we can see that the arrangement process uh, is open-ended, just like other entrepreneurial ventures. uh, entrepreneurs can be successful in figuring out how to properly motivate people and in inspiring them not to shirk. Um, but entrepreneurs uh, can also fail and provide disastrous ways of remunerating agents uh, such that they ruin the entrepreneur's own business. But the overall point is that there there are always a bro- uh, very broad arrays of incentives that are available to people that are constantly changing, uh, and the interaction between principal and agent, uh, especially between entrepreneurs and their subordinates, uh, is likewise a, a constantly shifting problem of uh, anticipation and speculation. Uh, because uh, and, and this entrepreneurial uh, behavior is just a, a necessary part of, of the market process. It's not uh, an aberration, um, as it's often treated uh, in the mainstream literature. Um, so, so pointing out that, that incentives are a problem for entrepreneurs is one way uh, in which moral hazard can be thought of uh, from an Austrian perspective, uh, another very important way that I'll, I'm going to have to skip over, um, although actually it's fortunate because in a sense it's already been covered today, um, an- another very important aspect of the, these, uh, these moral hazard problems is in just defining uh, what negative welfare outcomes are to begin with. Um, this morning in the author's forum, a couple of different people uh, brought up the, this idea of the nirvana fallacy, that you can't compare the real world to some sort of abstract equilibrium where all the relevant problems have been assumed away. Um, this is uh, gets right at the core of the idea of moral hazard because in the mainstream literature, it's almost it's constantly defined in terms of one of these uh, equilibrium points. Um, unfortunately, I don't. I'm out of time, so I won't have time to talk about uh, uh, any more sort of explicitly Austrian takes on this. Um, but essentially, I mean, I think you can anticipate the punchline of this. Uh, and that will be that um, true moral hazard problems are going to be emerging uh, in situations in which this entrepreneurial market process is disturbed, um, particularly when it's disturbed through some type of coercion, uh, be it private or public. Um, As I said, there are many more details in this, but unfortunately, uh, I'm out of time. So thank you for your attention.